I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Pressbox Access. Hey folks, a quick note. Check out our new Pressbox Access channel on YouTube. You'll see a wide variety of clips from interviews such as Dave Kindred comparing Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus or Peter King recalling his early days of covering Bill Parcells and Lawrence Taylor. You can also listen to entire episodes on the YouTube channel. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button. Hey, it's free. And I might buy you a beer. Okay, let's roll this episode. I used to run into Jeff Calkins on the road a lot back in my days as a sports writer. We'd be at the same events with a lot of the same writers sent by other newspapers. It was a traveling circus of misfit toys. Jeff knows that road well after 30 years, most of those spent as the voice of Memphis, where a few times he's been honored by the APSC as best sports columnist in the country. But the road Jeff took to get to that road, well, that was a little different, at least among most other ink-stained wretches. We're gonna talk about that path and hear some other stories from his years behind the keyboard. Hey, Jeff, come on into the tavern. Welcome. Well, it's good to be here, Todd, and nice to see you again. Uh, you recently moved from sports to general news column uh, for the Daily Memphian. Uh, I'm just curious, uh, all those years, 30 years yourself of doing sports, why, why to switch into news? I know you're still doing a sports radio show, but why write about other things right now? Yeah, I mean, I still do the radio show from 9 to 11, but really what happened is really two things. Um, one is, as you know, it's a grind. Like, being a sports writer, being a columnist in a city like Memphis, when Ja Morant, you know, wakes up one morning with a, you wake up one morning and Ja has a gun on Instagram, there goes your Saturday. When he hasn't, does it again, there goes the, another Saturday. You know, Grizzlies games, Tiger, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of games. And it felt like, honestly, like I was doing it, the same thing I'd done for 30 years. But because access had changed, the world had changed, I was doing it less well honestly. Um, but then the other real reason is that it has been a hell of a year in Memphis for a couple of reasons. Um, then there were a couple of really signature tragedies. One is um, a woman named Eliza Fletcher was, was um, abducted jogging and, and murdered. And that became a sort of symbol of a crime crisis in, in the city. And the second was that Tyree Nichols was killed by Memphis police um, and uh, murdered, really, by Memphis police. And I remember covering sports, and there's other times when, you, you, you know, you wonder whether you're writing about the right thing. Or, but I was at a Grizzlies game during this period, and I just thought, you know what? As much as I care about Memphis uh, sports, I care about the city more. And if I could write and contribute anything to the issues that are sort of roiling Memphis right now, that I'd like to take a shot at doing that. Well, I really applaud you for the move. I mean, and you're such a part of the community. You've been there, what, 27 years? So, you know, people do know you and they have learned to trust you and maybe they don't agree with you, but they know where you're coming from. They know who you are. And that says a lot about the community and yourself and that type of relationship. And... You don't necessarily have to be at the 2008 NCAA men's basketball championship game. We've talked deadline with some writers. Yeah. Can you put us in that place? Memphis is winning 
I think by nine or 11, 11 with two yeah, minutes they're to up go. By 11. You've got a column due because you're the Memphis guy. What the hell was it like for you on deadline when all of a sudden Kansas comes scrambling back and Mario Chalmers hits a three at the top of the key to force overtime? You just, I mean, it's, 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 it's gutting, not because it's Memphis losing. It's because what happens is, is that, I mean, I, I was never great on deadline. Some people are wonders on deadline. And I was never great on game columns on deadline. It just, I, I would, the old Red Smith line, open up a vein and bleed. Like, and that's sort of what I was like. And so, um, but you're working on two columns. Like you really, you know, the, the, I think the deadline was 10 minutes after and it was, and on the one, it's Memphis finally wins a, a, a championship after all these years of Larry Finch and, and, and that team in 72, 73, losing to Bill Walton and then the Dana Kirk team uh, that went to the Final Four. And now here finally with John Calipari and Derek Rose and Chris Douglas Roberts, they're going to win a championship for a city that really had never had a championship of any sort. So you're trying to capture that in one file. And then you have this eh, crushing loss, uh, they, you know, whatever it is, you're in the other file. And yes, you're putting in live stuff that's happening along the way, but you're really building two separate columns. And with about three minutes left, you realize Memphis is going to win. So you abandon the lose column and you just focus on writing the, the civic celebration column. And then Mario Chalmers hits that shot, and you just it curse. In, I mean, it's 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 impossible because there's no way you can. I, I can't capture this in seven minutes or thirteen or whatever. I don't remember how many it was. I actually did. I said, I at that point I called and I said, "You got to give me an extra ten minutes or something here." Did they give it to you? Yeah, I got an extra ten minutes. You know, it was a it was a big event, but it was um, oh god, what an awful, what an awful. Uh, I mean, it was cliche in the end, but it would survive in advance even for the writers. I was, it was just absolute hell. It, it was, <laughs> it was absolute hell. There's just no other way to describe it. And now, even now, when something happens in any big game, and I'm not there, that's that dramatic. You just feel for the people in the press box. Oh, yeah, that's a natural reaction. It's just, yeah. I've been out of the business for six years, and if I am watching a game late at night and something does happen, my first thought is, those poor bastards. (laughs) Exactly right. It's (laughs) It's those poor bastards. That's just true. Well, you know what, Jeff? On that crazy night when you were sitting there bleeding on the keyboard, you were doing exactly what you wanted to do as a child, and I want to go back to uh, your love of writing, and I want to take you back to, you're in the third grade, and I don't think a lot of people know about this, but at the time as a child, you had leukemia, and you're in bed at the Buffalo Children's Hospital, and your mother would bring something to your room every day. What did she bring? Yeah, she brought a typewriter, and it's really, like I an mean. Old manual typewriter. The old, she'd haul in a typewriter. And, um, and I would dictate stories and she would type them up. So I was diagnosed in the late sixties with childhood leukemia at a time when it was a death sentence. Like right now, 
95%. It's one of, it's the it's the miracle. Like the 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 cancer miracle is childhood leukemia, which went from being everybody died to now pretty much everybody lives. It's really one of the incredible advances. But that hadn't happened yet. And so uh when I was diagnosed, I had shingles is what first I was in third grade and I had shingles and that's what well, why do why do you have shingles and and uh and then my parents were doctors and they immediately felt my spleen. My spleen was big and and so I, I go into the hospital and I later on, I had my mom on the radio show. We didn't talk about any of this much, but now years later, I said, what was it like when I was diagnosed? And she said, I thought it would be easier if you'd been hit by a truck because <clears throat> the end was going to be the end. But my dad found this doctor in, uh, in, uh, the, my, my dad was in academic medicine and he, so he knew a doctor in, um, in New York who was starting on a new protocol and I happened to get lucky enough to be included in the new protocol. And, um, so right now you see kids who, who are leukemia survivors from the first class of them. And they're basically my age. They're in their, they're in their sixties, their young sixties or late fifties. Right. And, but anyway, so yeah, I'd lie in bed and mom was like, she'd come in and she'd, I'd dictate stories and then we'd send it back to the third grade class. And then everyone in that class would have to write me a story. You know, I was the kid with cancer in the class. And so I'd get a story from everyone, whatever. But I really, ever since then, I thought of myself as a writer. Like it was, it was my mom typing those stories as I dictated them to her um, that made me think, you know, I like words and I like telling stories and I lost my way along the way a little bit, but, um, but I got back to it. And I, I, now I can't imagine having done anything else. I really can't. That's just a, a poignant image of your mother typing away as you dictate a story. And uh, I'm always fascinated by where did a writer first fall in love with the idea of writing and that. Where'd you? That, like, did you know in elementary school you were a writer? Uh, I, th I do remember having a, uh, like a fifth grade teacher or something give me a lot of positive feedback. And then I would, yeah. I would play this APBA baseball dice game and I would write game summaries of what happened when my brothers and I or our friends, we played this baseball game and I would keep a notebook and just write. And uh, so I figured, well, that's probably where it all started. That's, that's and for where you, started, yeah. a couple of years later when your leukemia is in remission, you, you suddenly said, you know, I want to be a sports columnist, you know? You're like in the fifth grade and like, I want to do that someday. Well, the, the columnist in Buffalo was Larry Felser. He was the columnist for the Buffalo News. You know, back then we had the Career Express and the Buffalo News, but the, the columnist was Larry Felser. I never understood why they also ran this guy at the time. I'd ne you know, I was in what, elementary school. or what, they, they used to run Red Smith's columns too. And I'm like, oh, yeah. You're indicated out of New York, the great Red Smith. Yeah. I was like, he never writes about the Bills or the Sabres. Why do I care <laughs> what this Red Smith guy said? I mean, that's yeah. what, you know, I didn't. I wasn't interested in poetry at I the love time. That. This Red Smith guy. Yeah, yeah. So um, I wanted, like, I was, you know, I went to the when OJ Simpson broke the record, uh, the Russian two thousand yards, seventy two seventy three season. Um, the the he broke it against the Jets in New York. Yeah, at Shea Stadium. But the previous game was a blizzard in Buffalo, and I was at that game with my dad, and. Yeah, I just loved the sports. I loved reading the sports pages. And if I misbehaved, it was, you know, no sports page for a week. You know, oh, that was what wow. it, it was like. It was like, no, no, not no television. For, it was no sports page for a week. Right. And um, and so I, yeah, if you'd asked me when I was 12 what I wanted to do, it was absolutely to be a sports writer.
Okay, well, you became one, but you mentioned you took a detour. You go to Harvard and you study history and you're working for the school paper and you've got a couple internships. You work for Time Life in the summer. You're at Miami Herald. And then what happens is I applied to Harvard Law School just to see if I'd get in. I didn't apply to 15 law schools and I got in. And I don't know if they still say it, but what they back then they would say is you can do anything with a law degree. That was it. You can do anything with a law degree. And how do you turn down Harvard Law School? So I said, well, I'll just go to Harvard Law School. I mean, talk about polar opposites, sports writing and law. You know, first of all, you're at Harvard Law. I'm at Kentucky. You're majoring in law. I'm majoring in beer. I'm going to be a sports writer. You're going to go solve the world's problems as an attorney. And you became one for a firm in Washington, D.C. I believe it was Hogan and Hartson. And you had a colleague, uh, this guy named John Roberts, you know, Supreme Court Chief Justice. You're making money. You're making billable hours. And then in, at age 30, I think, 31, 1991, what the hell were you thinking? Well, first, John Roberts was a colleague, but he was a, let's be honest, John Roberts was a partner at the law firm that I worked, where I worked. And I was an, I was an associate. I don't even know, you know, I, he was vaguely aware of my name. But it was interesting. Like, I, well, there was one, one of my friends was a Supreme Court clerk because I had clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals. And so one, and he, he worked for Antonin Scalia. And so there was one day he said, hey, we're going jogging today. You want to come jogging with me and the justice? And so I went jogging with Antonin Scalia. Like it was, it was a, the quote unquote heady world of law. And I hated it. I uh, just hated really, it. Hated, yeah. it and hated it in a way that, you know how when you're writing papers in college, you're doing, and you have to will yourself through it hour by hour. All right, let's go work for four hours on this. That's how it felt. It right. was awful. The mo- yeah. I had the most fun. And honestly, it wasn't just like, oh, I just decided to do something else. I think, I don't know what an emotional breakdown is, but I was, I was drinking too much. I was becoming a profound hypochondriac. I was, I was sort of falling apart in my well, 20s. You actually I, sound like a sports writer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So I... <laughs> I felt like I'd done everything right, and I was miserably unhappy. And so, I, yes, I took a job in Aniston. So, Jeff, you moved on to your first big boy job when you went down to the Sun Sentinel in, in uh, Florida, Fort Lauderdale, to cover Major League Baseball. And that's not an easy beat. What was it like for a guy who was, you know, you're in your early 30s, but you're kind of young to the, the job of sports writing. What was it like to jump into Major League Baseball and the challenges that you faced with that? Uh, it was really hard, honestly, <laughs> and I wasn't very good at it. Um, Fred Turner was the sports editor there, and he would take chances on people, and he took a massive chance on me because I'd only worked in the business for a year and a half, two years. Aniston was a was an afternoon paper, so I really wasn't writing deadline stuff. And baseball, as you point out, is a hellacious beat. And I was lucky that Gordon Eads was the beat writer, like Gordon Needs had done the first year of the Marlins and he wanted to be the national writer and have someone, you know, cut, do most of the games. That was the idea. And so I came in as the beat writer. Um, and so Gordon was a, just a massive help. He's a unbelievably gifted writer, reporter, just a, the five tool guy. Like he's unbelievable. So he was a huge help, but it was also at a time when like, Lebetard was at the Miami Herald. Pedro Gomez was at the Miami Herald. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the Palm Beach Post, Jeff Miller, who's really good, was at the Palm Beach Post. Evan Grant, who covers Dallas now, he, was, he covers yeah, he, the Rangers, I think. Like, the beat, you'd wake up every day 
And this is back when you would wake up to figure out what was in the competition. It wouldn't be online because there was no online. And honestly, baseball, right? Baseball players are tough and baseball writers are tough. Like I covered hockey down there a little bit and everyone could have been nicer. Baseball, like you feel like baseball, even in the baseball writing fraternity, they're sizing you up. And if you don't know the double A shortstop is for, you know, what you're, you're, it felt like to me anyway. And maybe I was just you though at that point. Eh, (laughs) I don't remember it with great joy. I do not remember being a baseball writer with great joy. The best part was, um, you know, the, 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 the road trips where you get to unpack, you mm-hmm. know, that's nice. Being in, in, you know, in Denver for three or four days, in San Francisco for three or four days, getting to the ballpark. Randy Latchman was the manager. He was really nice to me and patient. And because it was clear, I was, I'll be honest, it was clear to me anyway that I was in over my head um, covering baseball. And um, so was it good for me? It was good for me. I got faster on deadline. I learned something about reporting. Um, I learned a lot just watching how Gordon would interact with the players. In what ways? Just the way he had conversations with yeah, them? Yeah, just the way he had conversations. He wouldn't, he'd walk up and he'd just have conversations with them. And then he'd pull out his notebook, you know, five minutes into the conversation and write something down. And this is basic stuff, but he wasn't just walking up to someone and beginning the interview now, you know, right, like he right. was, he was shit in the shed with them. Like he was great at it. And so to see all that was, was a trial by fire. But do you think those do you think those lessons you learned as a beat reporter for a couple of years on a really tough beat? Do you think they helped when you then went on to become a columnist? Oh yeah, I, and I honestly, I I think truthfully, I think it would have been better. I would have been better served to be a beat writer longer. Like I think those skills are absolutely critical. And because I didn't start really being a journalist till I was thirty one is when I finished journalism school before I went down to Aniston. And I was in a hurry then but to become a columnist at that point because I was freaking 31, you know? I didn't, and mm. so, um, so I, I would have been better served had I worked a beat for four years, right? Or five years. I, I really think I would have been better served. Um, I was somewhat over my head when I, when I, I was still in over my head when I got to Memphis. I'd been, in, I'd been a sports writer at that point for four years when I got to be the columnist in Memphis. Yeah, you show up in Memphis in 1996. Well, Memphis has changed so much as a sports city since the time you arrived to where it is now. Um, you've been able to document that. You wrote that in your book, you know, after the jump, uh, your collection of the comms over the 20-year period where the city just exploded on the sports scene, right? It's been fun. But since I've been here, you know, we've had, uh, you, had you know, Calipari and, and that era uh, in Memphis football, you've had um, Memphis, I mean, Memphis basketball, Memphis football uh, got to be uh, at least briefly relevant going to the Cotton Bowl and and uh, Justin Fuente and Mike Norvell and, right. and that era. Um, we had the Tyson Lewis fight, which was absolutely wild uh, and a lot of fun to cover. And then, you know, there was the whole fight about whether to bring the Grizzlies here uh, and, you know, are the Grizzlies going to work? And then, and then everything around the Grizzlies and the the, the the Zach Randolph Grizzlies. We had Jerry West came to town briefly. Yeah, think about Alan that. Iverson yeah, the logo even, in town, right? Alan Iverson even more briefly, and now um, and now Ja. So um, 
it's been a, we, we had a year with the Titans, which was its own fiasco in town. Um, so it's been a, there's been no shortage of things to cover. Plus, of course, when I first moved here, at that point, as you know, when you were in Cincinnati and Columbus, like Columbus covered the Olympics, right? You covered the Olympics right. for Columbus. Right. That's unheard of now. I bet Columbus doesn't send, they probably send multiple, back then they sent multiple people to the Olympics. Here, you know, I went to eight Olympics as the columnist in Memphis. I covered a lot of wonderfully fun things, you know, across the world. But then what I've really liked being more, you know, more than anything is being, you know, I like it when people come up to me in the grocery store and say, I read your column or I ate your column. Yeah. Think about the things you got to experience. Like you just mentioned, traveling right. the world, all these big events and being the voice, right? Yeah. yeah. I, that, that's and being that's the been voice. the part. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about some more things about Memphis. Or you mentioned the Grizzlies. When they came in as an NBA franchise in Memphis in 2001, they came in from Vancouver. Things really changed. And you mentioned a particular player I wanted to ask you about, and that's Zach Randolph. I think you have said that the biggest mistake you ever made was you wrote a column saying that they should not trade for him. And they, he comes in and he carries a team to seven straight playoffs. <laughs> There's Believe Memphis towels waving. Um, when you think about that now, looking back, if that was a mistake, what, was, what were you wrong about in a moment and how do you look at it now? Well, Zebo had a reputation as a bad guy, honestly. At that point, he had gone from Portland, he played for the Knicks, and he played for the Clippers. And in Portland in particular, he had the reputation as a bad guy. And um, I talked to people in Portland and they said he was a bad guy. And so for a franchise in Memphis that really had never had any success of any, uh, uh, you know, uh, were, they'd been to the playoffs. They went to the playoffs three straight years with Pau Gasol, but had never won a game once they got to the playoffs. And so you have this young team and, 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 and why bring in a guy who's, you know, has this person. And the truth of the matter is, so I wrote a column just saying, don't do it. Like I, you know, don't do it. This is it's ridiculous. This is stupid. He's a bad guy. Um, and you can just look at his rap sheet. He had an extensive rap sheet as well. But I remember Tony Baroni, who was assistant GM at the time, he took me aside and he said, Jeff, you're, you're wrong about this. Like hey. what Zebo is, is he's a follower and um, he's going to be fine. And he came here and he was great. I mean, Zebo, um, Zebo was absolutely, he was fun to cover. He led that team to its first playoff win and its first ser playoff series win over Tim Duncan and the Spurs. Um, and it's not like the incidents went away. Like there were some incidents when he was here where uh, 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 evidently a, a, a weed dealer was beaten up by a pool cue at his house or something. Like, I mean, there, were, there was, it's not like it all went away. Right. And who knows if in the, in the era of, cell phones, if we would have seen more about what Zebo was up to, but really became a beloved member of the community who would, he's, an, he's just a natural fit in Memphis. This is a tough town and he's a tough guy. And so it was a fit right from the beginning. How did he, how did he react to you when he comes to town and you're saying, don't trade for this guy? How kind of, how did he react to you and what kind of working relationship were you able to build with him? He was fine. Zebo never, I don't know that Zebo read the stuff, honestly. Like, I don't like Zebo never struck me as a guy who read the stuff. The guy I once had an issue, not an issue with, I love Tony Allen. I wrote a column. Mark Gasol got hurt one, one year. 
And uh, I quoted Tony. And Tony, the quote was, without Mark, we're a makeshift team. That was the quote that went in the column. Mm-hmm. And um, the pullout, so the editors had a pullout quote. Look out. <laughs> and, yeah. and they typed it in rather than, than copying it. So in the column, it said makeshift team. The pullout yeah. quote said literally giant pullout quote, without Mark Gasol, we're a makeshift team. <laughs> Tony Allen. Uh, he wouldn't, he, and they explained to him that the editors did it, that the editors uh, did it. Make shit team. I love it. He, he was for, he held a grudge for about six months. <laughs> Zebo never held the grudge. And, um, and honestly, it's one of the, like, I don't, I don't want to be the guy who's bemoaning how things have changed, but like that group, Mark Gasol, Mike Connolly, Zach Randolph, Tony, they'd ask about my kids. You know, they knew the names of my kids. Like, it was, they just, that's how it was. And you could you could agree to disagree or maybe and you battle could agree, over yeah, something you, for a couple of days. And then exactly. you kind you of get figured out it. how, okay, we're, we're kind of in this game together. We're going to somehow, you know, make this Exactly. Work. And it's, and now because there's no relationship, it's just very, it's just, it's very, it's very different. Hey, before we leave the Grizzlies, I, I want to ask you about one particular coach, and that's the great Hubie Brown. Oh. Now, Hubie Brown in 2002, at age 69, was hired to coach the Grizzlies. He has two full seasons and a dozen games in 2004. ESPN just extended his deal for its 20th year at age 89. He's in his 50th year associated with the NBA. What was it like to be around Hubie Brown on a pretty much daily basis for a couple of years? It was just a, it was a gift. And, and I didn't, I don't think anyone expected it to be. Like, it was a weird ass hire. Like, they just hired Jerry West and Jerry West comes in, team gets off to a bad start, fire the coach, who are they going to hire? And you hear Hubie Brown, who's been out of it for 10 years. And the, and the last job he had, it was sort of, you know, Hubie, stubborn, irascible, getting into it, the players, couldn't adapt to the, you know, the new age of the NBA. Like, that was sort of when he was fired the last time. He was already, he, he didn't fit in the modern NBA. And here's 10 years later, you're going to hire Hubie <laughs> Brown? This is insane. I never wrote that, but that's what I thought. Yeah, right. and, and he came in and, like, it was, and I love hearing Hubie on television, and it feels like, Let's just put the. He won coach. He ended up winning coach of the year. He was great. That team. He got a team that that, that had Paul Gasol as their best player. But then their next best player was James Posey, Shane Battier, who was not anything like he was. You know, he was good, nice, good, decent NBA player. But they had no second star, much less third star. So why was he be the right guy? Why was he great for that team? Because well, he he did a uh, he did a 10-man rotation, two five-man units. Like, he, he treated it like it was college, basically. And uh, he, had, he had two five-man units. He had uh, Jason Williams and Shane and Powell and Posey, and they busted their ass. Powell, who just went into the Hall of Fame, is just an incredibly, wonderfully skilled player. But he just, he somehow squeezed the most out of them. Hey. I mean, it was incredible. And then 
you couldn't miss the post game pressers because he just hold forth like it was it was <laughs> it was shoe beyond round ball. It was absolutely must see TV. Well, give us an example of a moment you I don't remember, remember from you. I don't remember a mo- anything in particular. I wish I did anything in particular. He said, "What I remember is this though. No one thanks reporters, right? Like no one. Why? And I don't need. We don't do it for thanks. But in the end, when it was over, Hugh B." like approached me in the hallway and said, I just want to thank you for covering me the way you have for the last two years. This has been, he said, I'm a teacher. And for me to have been back and teaching again for these two years has been one of the great gifts of my life. And I want to thank you for, you know, everything you've written about me during this, this period, because I don't know. I don't want to say we were fawning over him, but we realized after a while that it was what was happening here was special and how much it meant to him. In the end, if you are put on this earth and you just know that you're meant to, there's some people are meant to be doing a certain thing, right? And for Hubie, he is meant to be Mm -hmm. teaching basketball. And for him to have a chance to do it, what struck me is it's taken away from him for 10 years. And to have that again, to be given the gift and the opportunity to do it again, and his gratitude at that, how much he reveled in the second chance and how much he was ultimately grateful for the second chance. What did you learn as a journalist from being around Hubie? Oh, I mean, in, I'll say this. But one thing you do learn is I've never been an X and O guy. Like, that's never been my, I'm never going to challenge a coach particularly on X and O's. That's not what I write about generally. Hubie, the, the, the way he would, and maybe it's more natural now because you can, re- but the way he would break things down for you and the way it, he showed you what I don't, like, I don't know. Like it was an education and that's the way it was. It was the, well, these were five things that were happening out there and oh, wow, I tell you this and, and, and off he'd go. Um, but it wasn't, um, he was easy to cover. The truth of the matter is he was easy to cover. Now at the end, he wasn't easy to cover because it, the organization wasn't because there became incredibly bitter feelings between Hubie and Jerry and Hubie's son. Like in the end, Hubie's son worked for the organization and some of the players hated Hubie's son and it became deeply complicated um, like so many of these things do. Um, but, but it wasn't hard to cover Hubie when he was, when it was in his, his glory days here. So even when it got messy, he still sought you out and said, thank you. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, no, he's he's a he's an un, and when I see him now, he's just incredibly gracious, great. It, you know, yes, everyone remembers here what that moment was like, as fleeting as it was. It's funny how your outside impressions of someone, and maybe this is a lesson: the impressions that you have of someone. This is true of Zach Randolph. This is true of Hubie Brown, and it's true of Jerry West. You know what everyone says. And then you interact with them. And if you're fair and if you're open-hearted and observant, then you learn something else. Jerry West came in here as everyone thought he was, you know, the logo, the dignified, uh, regal uh, representative of the NBA practically. And Jerry came in here, and this is all being captured right now in the Winning Time series, incredibly profane, (laughs) um, mercurial, like Jerry, after they traded Jason Williams, they traded Jason Williams uh, at the end of a season. And, and 
Jason and I had had a blow up in the locker room after the last game. Yeah, I remember that. You ain't going to write it nothing, homeboy. I, I, he said, you ain't writing nothing. <laughs> That's what he said boy. to you, right? Yeah, and he took my pen. He said, you ain't getting no interview. And he took my pen. So I criticized the trade. I said, really, you're getting Eddie Jones? Like, this is like, like, why do we need old Eddie Jones? I criticized. Jerry called me, left me a voicemail message. He said, Jeff, Jerry West, he's always very, very dignified at the beginning. He said, Jeff, Jerry West, I read your column this morning, you fucking asshole. I just want you to know, I'm going to wish Jason Williams had beaten the shit out of you in the locker room, you, and just on and on and on. F-bomb, F-bomb, F-bomb. And then he'd say, Wow. Uh, see you again soon. Uh, <laughs> goodbye. Like, it, he, it was, yeah, the, the, the message was he wished Jason Williams had beaten the hell, hell out. So uh, how did you respond to this? Well, by that point, we knew that was Jerry. Like, it's just Jerry. And that's why when right now people are, like when Jerry objected to the winning time profile, and I haven't actually seen winning time, what I read is that he comes across off as a lunatic. That is what he came across as in Memphis. Like, he's a very smart guy. He did draft Kobe Bryant. He did lots of things, and I don't doubt any of that. But emotionally, his struggles that he has with his temper, with his depression, with lashing out, what, like, we saw that all the time. That was Jerry West. I mean, that's what, um, and, 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 I think anyone probably who's been around Jerry West at any point in a, in a working environment now knows that. Certainly people in Memphis did. And we're stunned. We're like, we thought Hubie was going to be difficult. He was a dream. We thought Jerry was going to be a dream. And man, was that a roller coaster. I still want to know, how did you respond to a voicemail like that? What did you call I don't, him? I, have, I wish <laughs> I had the voicemail. I probably called him back. I, I probably did nothing. I just said, well, Jerry's venting. I, and that was not the first time Jerry went off. Like, Jerry would go off all the time. Like, he would, that's what he did. The, the good news is he would tell you what he was thinking. Like, Jerry couldn't stand Shane Battier as a player. And he didn't like the fact that the city loved Shane Battier so much. And so he'd ripped Shane Battier to you off the record. And he just, like, Jerry was a, he, he, he didn't hide anything. And so I don't even think I was, I was a little stunned by that message just because who says, I wish Jason Williams had beaten the hell out of you. But I don't even think I called him back to say, I just think I thought he was blown off steam. And the other issue is, and this, this is the column that I wrote that inspired Jason Williams to go off on me was a bad column and, unf and unfair. Mm -hmm. And so I. In what ways? Why? What was bad about it? Why were you unfair? He just said some stupid thing like, uh, you know, at the end, it, even if we lose, you know, I'm, I'll still have my family to go home and love my family. And I ripped him for it. And that's stupid. Like, he was just saying that he was just, I was saying, at the end, like, it was, what, what, what I, I sort of said, then why are people buying tickets? It's fine if you lose, whatever. It was a stupid column. And, and I kind of went in on him for saying just the, the stupid thing that someone says, you know, the cliche thing. And um, so I never... Like, he got fined $25,000 for that outburst, stealing my pen, all of that. Um, a couple of years later, after he won a championship in Miami, he, was, he came back to the Grizzlies as a free agent just for the end of the year. And there was like, oh, what's it going to be like between Jason Williams and Calkins when, when he gets here? Cage match. And so I show up for the availability, and I show up with... 20 pens in my pocket, like the, in, my, in my shirt pocket. And he <laughs> laughed, and that, and that was that. <laughs> but I, I guess, you know, so back to the question is, is you, I, in the end, I, you learn that, that what, what, what the world thinks of someone isn't necessarily 
isn't necessarily accurate about what they what they really are. Okay, another basketball figure you butted heads with yeah. is John Calipari. University of Memphis for nine seasons from 2000 to 2009. We mentioned the 2008 NCAA championship game lost to Kansas. That was part of three straight Elite Eights. He's a Hall of Fame coach, super successful. How would you describe your relationship with Calipari during his tenure? John needed an enemy, and I became his enemy. But the truth of the matter is, when I got to Memphis, I, was, I would write tough columns. But then I quickly realized this is it's a different kind of town. Like, it doesn't need people kicking. You know, you don't need a ripping column every day. It's just not that kind of place. And so I lobbied for them. I, I wrote columns saying you got to go hire John Calipari. At the end of the first year of covering John, I knew John was unhappy about the coverage. And so I literally took every column I'd written because he'd say, well, I don't read them, but people tell me. So I literally said, John, let's sit down at the end of the year. And I, I brought every column I'd written. I said, what, what do you object to here? Like, what's the, and he wouldn't, he'd just kind of wave me off. He's like, I'm not going to, I don't need to look at them. I don't know, whatever. I literally, and this is the day we had to cut out columns. I brought him every column that I'd written. And I said, like, what, what you rip me all the time. What exactly is the gripe? And he wouldn't even, he didn't want to engage on that level. He just didn't. John needed enemies, and he called them the miserables. He'd call someone the miserables. He's great at, it's almost a Trump gift of the way that he would use his enemies and label his enemies. Mm -hmm. So I was like the head miserable. But I didn't, like, here's the only thing I'd write about John. I never, if they lost a basketball game, they shouldn't lose. I wouldn't rip him for his strategy. That's just not, again, that's not sort of who I was. But he would do things like players would be suspended uh, for one reason or another. They got in a fight or they were, you know, whatever, whatever it is, caught with weed at the time, mattered, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then he'd say, I'm not going to suspend them for the first game of the season. I'm going to suspend them for the first conference game of the season because that matters more to them. Like, it, it's going to really hit them where they hurt. And that was just ridiculous. The first game was against Georgetown or something, and then the conference game was against Tulane, which sucked. So I'd write a column saying, this is ridiculous. Like, this isn't taking punishment seriously. I would absolutely criticize his very flexible punishments. There was a, woman, there was, there was a player he had who was, who was um, convicted, who was charged with domestic violence. And I wrote columns saying, you can't possibly play this player. Are you out of your mind? What, like, what are you doing? And, um, and those kinds of columns I would write about his very flexible discipline. But that's really all. I, beyond that, they were awesome. It was <laughs> like they went to, you know, well, they went to three straight Elite Eights. Was that it? They went to, you know, they went to a Final Four. They were like, right. in, yeah. it, 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 Memphis basketball will never be better than it was under John Calipari. But John really needs to fuel himself with enemies. And so I think he picked me out as the enemy. Did you guys ever get along? No. Did you ever have a stretch where you could maybe have a be- conversation? We could have conversations, but not civil ones. Here's the thing, though. For all of that, all of John's practices were open to everybody, including me. And John would have a a Selection Sunday party at his house that I'd go to, and and, uh, I'd cover him there. He had something up for the rebounders, the, 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 the booster club before the season began with all the players available to talk, and I'd go there. Like, he never, he absolutely hated me, 
but he never like tried to hold it against me in terms of covering the team. And I give never, he never, never cut stopped you talking off. to me. Never didn't answer questions. He would, he would never say my name. Like it was that kind of pettiness. Well, some guys don't know basketball or, and he'd be clearly looking at me and you know, whatever, but he would never, um, he never cut me off. He never tried to punish me in any, in that way. The one thing he, the one, um, uh, the one thing I, I always did wonder, he had a guy named Smitty, who was sort of his right-hand man. And Smitty came over one day when John first started not liking me and said, hey, uh, Cal and I have a bet. What bar exam did you pass? Was it the mass bar or the DC bar? And I, I looked and I was kind of confused. And I said, I, I passed the DC, I passed the New York, I passed the New York bar because I'm from Buffalo and you can wave into DC if you mm -hmm. pass the New York bar. And so I said that, and then it occurred to me, what kind of stupid bet is that? What bar did Jeff, is that really a, a bar? Like if you're sitting around the bars and hey, Calkins, did he, no, they were trying to prove that the reason that I didn't make it as a lawyer or remain a lawyer was that I hadn't passed the bar. Wow, it really got personal. A, a little bit. Like, that was the one. But in terms of coverage, it never did. Like, in terms of coverage, I was never cut off. That team was an absolute dream to cover. You could be in practice every day. It was unbelievable. Um, and so, and an incredibly colorful group. And we were in the locker room, whatever. It was, it was, John was great. And he was a great promoter of the team. He was, like, John is an unbelievably good basketball, builder of basketball program. Since he moved to Kentucky in 2009, where he still remains and has had great success, won a national championship, do you, have you ever had a conversation with him? Do you have any kind of relationship no, with him now? No, I have no relationship with John. He came back, there, there was a uh, regional here, and I asked him a question. I don't even remember what it was. And it was the same sort of frosty, but he answered it. It was the same sort of frosty response. And the truth of the matter is that it's, it's, it's irrelevant. We, we, John is, has obviously, and he's in the Hall of Fame. He's, a, he's, he's great at what he does. But no, we have absolutely no relationship. If I saw Hubie, he'd warmly come over and ask me how I'm doing. If I saw John, he would not even acknowledge my existence, which is fine. Good. Like we always said, you weren't looking for friends. You were looking for and some access, some tremendous, story. And, tremendous. Uh, I'd trade that yeah. every time. So there and you here's go. the other thing. Great copy. Like, he was great copy. Great stories. Great copy. Um, I mean, I wrote a, you know, towards the end, I wrote a column about just John's verbal style and what a verbal genius he is. And I, you know, called professors from, uh, of uh, rhetoric and, and whatnot and ran things. You know, I was, the truth of the matter is, I was celebrating John right till the end because there was honestly no reason not to celebrate John and what he had accomplished at the University of Memphis. It is. It is, and, and I suspect always will be, the golden age of University of Memphis basketball. Well, there was never a dull moment with Kyle Parry. No. That's for certain. And, and there was never really a night quite like the night in Memphis of June 8th, 2002. You mentioned this earlier, and I want to follow up with it. The world championship fight between Mike right. Tyson and the champ, Lennox Lewis, was held at the Old Pyramid down in Memphis, you know, usually fights are in Vegas or, you know, New York or some overseas place. It ends up in Memphis, and you're the columnist in town. Boxing writers always say there's nothing quite like a championship fight, the night of a fight. 
You won an award recently for um, your 20-year look back on that night. What do you remember about the night and the atmosphere inside that building when Tyson and Lewis squared off? What's interesting is that even more than the night, to me, was the lead-up the week. I'll, I'll get to the night here in a moment, but it was the idea that this was happening in Memphis was insane. And, uh, and it was only because Nashville turned it down because Nashville thought it was too pristine a place for such a, a guy who, who, who would bite someone's ear and whatnot. And so the promoter, Brian Young, who was just a really small-town promoter at the time, he said, well, fine, I'll take it to Memphis. The mayor of Memphis, Willie Harrington, was a former Golden Gloves boxer. And, um, and so all of a sudden, no one wants this fight. Memphis will take it. And, like, I ended up going to, to Maui, uh, to Tyson's training camp. I went to the, to the uh, Catskills. It's funny. Lennox, Lennox, Lewis, Lennox Lewis had his, his um, training camp in the Catskills. And I stayed at this old, you know, like uh, like dirty dancing type hotel there in the Catskills. I remember the the only room I they could get it was a heart shaped bed with a mirror on the ceiling, just me and my little heart shaped bed. And but so then the week up to it, you have wait a minute. Did, did you get any points for staying there? <laughs> the week up to it, you've got this contrast of Lennox Lewis who comes in and is playing chess with the local kids of the local chess clubs and whatever else. And Lewis and, and Tyson, you know, Tyson gets off the plane. He's got a face tattoo. Um, I, I don't know if it was for that fight or the next fight he had the tape face tattoo. He's got his pigeons with him. At the time, he's being protested because he had said something that was homophobic. So remember there was one day out at the gym, he, uh, he was being protested by a, a, a local gay rights group. And he comes out of the gym where he'd been practicing and he walks right over to, I think a guy was with Jim Maynard, I think is the name was, who was, and he hugs him. And, um, and we didn't know if he was going to bite his ear. Like, what, what's going to happen here? Tyson is, it's just, <laughs> when, it's the fight, the magic of the fight is something, but then the, 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 everything that comes with that Tyson, like what is going to happen next? At the weigh-in, he was overweight. And his trainer said, um, or just, he said, don't worry, one poop and that'll be gone or something like that. He was five pounds overweight. I'm like, what kind of, what kind of a trip to the men's room is this going to be for, for him? But anyway, so it was just wild leading up to it. And then the whole world's media is in town in Memphis, which is a lot of fun. And then you go to the fight and there's Denzel, you know? I was, I talked to, um, Lee Steinberg was there, the agent. And I know Lee a little bit just from over the years covering players that he's represented and stuff. And I walk up to Lee Steinberg. I say, hello, whatever. And he says, hey, Jeff, this is a, and I didn't quite hear him. I didn't like hear he was, this is so-and-so and this is so-and-so. And I just kind of nod over there. And then I realize uh, it was uh, Toby Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio. Those were the two people who he was introducing me to, who were both wearing baseball caps. Did you ask him to write a sidebar? Trying not to, yeah, right. So, the fight wasn't much. The truth of the matter is, the fight wasn't much of a fight. Yeah, I think Lewis won in the eighth round knockout. He, he, yeah. he dominated him from the start, and he could have knocked him out earlier. It was really the fight, that whole era of Tyson as the baddest man on the planet, like indestructible, you know, what, what, what can, he can do things that no other fighter can do. You, you know, 
it really ended that night in Memphis. And then the subsequent fights were, were just sort of a sideshow. Yeah, his career was pretty much over a year later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are the kind of events, the kind of nights that, again, when you look back on, you know, all those years of covering sports, you know, and like you were mentioning earlier, just getting to travel. I mean, you, like you said, eight Olympics, uh, Masters, Super Bowls. When you think about all the things outside of Memphis that you went to, anything in particular stick out about your experiences? I mean, there's definitely moments when you are, it's, it's, it's pinch me, right? Like, hell, Prince's press conference before the Super Bowl, uh, where they planted someone who, like, Prince's performance at that Super Bowl is, you know, by acclaim, the oh, greatest. Purple rain in the right, rain. In the rain, like it was insane. I was, I was way up in the stadium. So I don't know that I even appreciated that as much as people who are watching on TV appreciated that halftime show. But they have a halftime press conference the day before or two days before, and they planted someone to ask a question. And then he did a performance. It, it just, it turned into a Prince concert in the press conference. And it was 300 people on a private press conference. He had his twins up there dancing. And, and it was like, that was nuts. And anyway, that's sort of a pinchy moment. The other ones that I remember are, you know, I really, I, yes, seeing, seeing Kathy Freeman win the, you know, a gold medal as an Aboriginal woman in Australia. Like that's unbelievably great. See Usain Bolt, I went to, you know, Usain Bolt do what he does at Olympics is incredibly great. But there's also stories along the way that I don't think anyone else particularly remembers, but that that I remember. Um, like at my first Olympics, there was a jumper from Japan named Happy Harada. What a name! And the uh, the 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 Japanese ski jumping team that that was the pride of that was who was supposed to win all their medals, right? And the team competition had come along, and they scratched. They did nothing. They were a national disgrace because they hadn't won, and it came down to Happy Harada's last jump. And he was the pride and joy of Japan. We he was talk the about last, pressure. <laughs> he was the last hope, right? And it is funny. You get on the, I don't know nothing about ski jumping. Nothing. I know nothing about ski jumping. I know it's insane. Jumping. I know that. It's part of the pleasure of it, right? But um, you get on a bus, and I, I remember I sat next to Dave Barry going up on the bus to, the, uh, to cover this event. And it comes down to the last jump. And what happens is there's a little green light that goes off. It's, okay, now it's time to go. And you see them jump. And then they land. And then it, you see the, immediately you see the scoreboard flash up. What's the, you know, you see the digital results right there within three seconds or two seconds. Well, Happy Harada lands and there's no result. There's no result. There's no result. There's no result. And it turns out that he had, out jumped the measuring equipment, so they had to get out there and manually measure the rest of it. Oh come and on! So like, like with a tape, went, like with a tape measure, and, and I don't know how to. And there, and and there's the gold medal. Like that's fantastic. <laughs> now he's or, very happy. And so now he's yes, the happiest of Harada. Right. I'll tell you the other the event that I think was as emotional as I've ever covered is the first gold medal game between the U.S. and the Canadian women's hockey teams. They had played each other, like no one else, no other women really play hockey at, the, at that point, right? It was the U.S. and the Canadian women had probably played each other 50 times leading up to this gold medal game. And they'd probably split 25 times each. Like they were the two powers. There had never been Olympic hockey before. Um, they were finally getting a chance. The women are incredibly smart, thoughtful. They're, they're not, you know, the, 
the goalie for the U.S. team went to Dartmouth and was a cellist, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 when the and when the it's when it's over, it's over, and you know they're going to go on their careers. There was no women's hockey league, and um, and that game the U.S. won the gold medal. And honestly, as emotional as anything I've ever, as anything I've ever covered, you yeah. know, and the women are incredibly eloquent and it's, you know, that was, that was spectacular. Yeah, it was just so much fun. The, yeah. the incredibly long days. I mean, the exhausting, the Olympics were, I went once at the Olympics, you know, you do the offbeat stuff. So I went and I, uh, Dave Hyde and I went down in Beijing to the market. There's a market where they have all the exotic food, right? And you, there's the centipedes and there's the, you know, monkey brains, uh, earthworms, and, yeah, and right. then monkey brains, and there's all this stuff. And and we're each thinking what we're going to eat and what we're going to write about for the column. And I settle on that I'm going to eat the sheep penis and write about sheep penis. Oh, come on. And, come on. and I did. That's what, that's Wait what I minute, had. you did? I did, yeah. I ate the sheep penis. Hyde was like, my readers can't handle sheep penis. I'm going to have the dog. And so that's what he did. We, we, like, whatever. We wrote, Wait a minute. I, wait a minute. He actually did eat dog? We wrote versions of the same column. But I, in the end, said I settled on the sheep penis. Hyde got crushed because his readers could not believe that he had the temerity and the heartlessness to eat dog. Yeah, I mean, he had so Fido was and a, fries, and I don't think people were going to be happy total, about that. exactly. How much is that doggy in the window? Oh, exactly. God. It's a total disaster of a column for him. Well, I was wondering when you left, uh, you know, the world of being an attorney, yeah. if, you know, me just needed a hot dog that bad that you wanted to go be a sports writer, <laughs> and now I find out you ate a sheep penis. Yeah, a sheep penis. And Dave Hyde a dog, which I'm going to have to That's ask That's exactly about. right. This is the first time we've had this conversation on this show, so... Yeah. Well, if anything, it shows you what kind of life it was, was as a sports writer. All those years, all those travels, all those moments, deadlines, craziness, happy people, upset people. When you think about it, though, you know, what a life. No. I mean, we were so Well, fortunate. the thing is, the part that I have liked really the most is being embedded in the community and writing and, and, and trying to help, you know, I don't know, trying to entertain or whatever. I know the folks in Memphis are... Lucky to have you now writing general columns as well as hosting your sports uh, radio show. And um, I I thank you so much, uh, Jeff, for sharing the memories here. I've admired this project from afar, and it's nice to be included. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for listening to PressBox Access. We have new episodes every other Wednesday. Subscribe and review us. Five stars, and I might buy you a beer. And check out the PressBox Access channel on YouTube. You'll see a wide variety of clips from interviews, such as Dave Kindred comparing Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus, or Peter King recalling his early days of covering Bill Parcells and Lawrence Taylor. You can also listen to entire episodes on that YouTube channel. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button. Hey, it's free. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And please spread the word to friends, family, and anyone who is interested in sports, journalism, and history. All are welcomed. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Huffman, and our engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on.
should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.